welcome to Mental Health Natters. Let me say our conversation today is with Emma Satoli from the Recovery Foundation, who the recovery team have worked in partnership with, and we'll hear a little bit more about that. Today, we are joined by me. I'm Jennifer, and I work in the recovery team. Hello everyone, so I'm Anne and I also work in the recovery team and I also use primary care mental health services so you may meet me at recovery college sessions as well and also we've got Gary with us this morning. Good morning, I'm Gary, Uh, I'm a peer support worker and I also work for the recovery team uh, in recovery college. So by way of introduction I'm going to let Emma do that to introduce herself Um, but just a little bit of an overview is the topic of conversation today is that uh, Emma is an expert by experience what we call an EBE so sharing her lived experience and today she's going to talk about her own experience and what led her to setting up the Recovery Foundation so I'm going to stop talking about you Emma and allow you (laughs) to talk about you Oh, thank you so much. That's such a lovely introduction, Jennifer. And thanks, Anne and Gary, as well, for inviting me onto the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. So, yeah, as um, as Jennifer said, my name's Emma. Um, first and foremost, um, I'm an expert by lived experience. And I guess that would probably be a really good place to start by sort of by way of what happened to me and then what that led on to. So in 2007, in fact, I can give you the exact date on the 14th of May in 2007, I had a breakdown at work. At the time, I was working as an assistant head of year at a secondary school in Neachels and I loved my job. I was really ambitious. I was career driven. I wanted to be a head teacher. That was that was it. That was the goal for me. I remember in the January of that year. So, you know, about sort of five months prior thinking to myself, I'm going to have a breakdown and then being like, no, no, and just pushing it down. But the stress inside me was like, I can only describe it as feeling like a coiled spring. And it was like each sort of day, somebody wound that spring a little bit tighter not my proudest moment a pupil came into my office without knocking and that for me was the straw that broke the camel's back to use that phrase really thankfully I didn't do what I wanted to do and I managed to restrain myself but I realized then that there was something very very wrong with how I was starting to feel I'd been hiding the fact that I'd been hearing voices for a very long time and it had been getting worse And they were telling me, like giving me instructions and telling me to do stuff and things I didn't want to do to hurt people, to hurt myself, all this kind of stuff. And I just pushed it down and squashed it down and thought, it'll go away if I just, you know, stick my head in the sand a little bit longer. It'd be fine. But it wasn't. Um, I was self-harming. I was withdrawing from people. um, I was starting to hallucinate in other ways. So I would see things that weren't there, feel things that weren't there, taste things that weren't there. And so basically that week, it was a Monday when I came out of the office and my um, sort of the manager said to me, go home, do not return to work until you have sorted yourself out. And I remember in my head being like, no, I'll be all right. Two weeks, I'll sort myself out, I'll be back. (laughs) I I never returned to that job. And that's okay um, because actually that was part of my journey. So that week, I think I was seen by I was seen by home treatment team. I was very quickly seen by a psychiatrist community psychiatric nurses, I saw a psychologist and I was given a preliminary diagnosis of severe depression and psychosis and I was terrified and I remember thinking to myself nobody understands, nobody 
is in my head and nobody gets it. Nobody. I can't talk to anybody about what's really going on because they're going to think I am weird. And I was just so fearful. Um, had you heard of those, um, the diagnosis before, before you had the, I suppose, the label for want of a better term of phrase? Had you come across that language before? I'd heard of depression and I'd heard of psychosis. But, and I'll be completely honest with you, I'd always thought that people like that were, oh, you know, I'd have said really judgmental things about those mm. kind of people. And I'd have been like, oh, they're nutters. They just need to get, the, you know, get it together, all that kind of thing. And to think that then I'd gone from that judgment to then somebody saying to me, well, actually, Emma, this is you right now. That was the scary thing, I think, because I didn't I didn't know how to handle how I thought about myself. Yeah, so it was certainly a process, but a good one, because... I've come out the other side and I won't well, come out the other side. I'm still walking um, on the other side, but it's changed me as a person. So I wouldn't I wouldn't change what I've been through because I think it's made me a better person. I think if I'd have carried on with those judgmental attitudes and viewing a certain type of person or a certain group of people who go through actually horrific life-altering experiences that they have no control over then I what kind of a person would I have been well not a very nice one really so yeah so that happened and then within a month I was on an inpatient unit I was at the maximum dose of antipsychotics antidepressants I was on PRN medication I'd lost friends I'd lost my career I felt like I'd lost myself I didn't know who I was I didn't know what what did Emma like like all of that just kind of fell by the wayside and the biggest thing for me was I felt like I'd lost hope and I just I I didn't know I like I felt lonely and I didn't know how I was ever going to get back could I ever get back to who I used to be and what I used to be and so that really was kind of the start of my journey I was an inpatient twice so I sort of I think my first inpatient stay wasn't quite a short one I think I was in for three weeks just um, more than anything I think to give my parents a reprieve and just kind of a bit of respite for them mum became my carer and obviously that sort of that had a put a different dynamic on our relationship I remember dad fitting a lock to a drawer in the kitchen and basically bit like that became the sharps drawer so you know and they'd wear the key around their neck because I was constantly trying to either hurt myself or hurt somebody else I can remember you know being restrained at home by people who had no idea how to do a restraint and just yeah just really not knowing being desperate for help but not not understanding and not being in the right place and in the right mind really to be able to access that properly so yeah with your family like you say you you were sort of were you living with your parents at the time I was, well. yeah. and d- did they have any sort of understanding or support about um your diagnosis and, and like you say about how to support you or how to look after themselves to look after you what was that like at the time so I th- well there was a baptism of fire for them I mean they'd they knew about depression but no it was new it was like something completely fresh I remember mum doing a lot of looking stuff up and sort of desperately trying to get advice from people and well what should I be doing and but I remember there was one thing that mum said to me right at the very beginning and this is something that sort of I've carried with me sort of for the whole of the rest of my journey and I will continue to is she said to me shoulder to shoulder Emma we're going to get through this together and that never changed and so 
I suppose one of the, the re- one of the reasons I am here is because of her. You know, she'd sleep across my doorway at night so that I, she would be physically woken up if I tried to leave the room. And it, I think for people who are thrown into that caring role, and it's certainly something you wouldn't wish upon yourself and you mm. wouldn't wish it upon whatever person it is that's going through it. But it really is a you, you have to learn very, very quickly. And I mean, mum now, when we talk about it, she says, Emma, I became an expert at reading you and she said it's almost like I became hyper vigilant like any little thing I'd be looking out for if you walked into a different room I'd have to follow you to make sure that you were safe and she gave up five years of her life to be able to care for me and I think carers are very underrated but what they do essentially is they save lives and I think they deserve so much more credit than they get and so much more support than they get actually yeah what points did you sort of think about developing or creating the foundation given the fact that you probably a lot of people reflect on things and they say well I wasn't in in the right place or I wasn't in the best place but I still did it you know I'm guessing it, it's part of your a huge part of your rec- ongoing recovery sort of developing that and and uh, and you know sort of giving yourself to that and I'm just sort of guessing I might be wrong but I guess it is part of your recovery and I'm just wondering what point you did you started to think about that yeah Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good question. I think while I was ill, I kept a journal. And initially, the reason for that was because I later learned that the voice I was hearing was a command hallucination. It was a command voice. So it would tell me not to tell my team or anybody around me what was in my head. So my sort of way of kind of bypassing that, I suppose, was that I would write it all down. So I kept this quite ridiculously detailed journal and I kept it for about about 18 months probably during that sort of real real crisis time and then as I started to discover what recovery might mean and what and and this sort of idea this notion that actually there are there, there are possibilities outside of this kind of horrificness that I'm in now I started to begin to look back on my journals and that for me almost triggered this idea of hope that I noticed that there was a theme through them. So I'd look back and I'd read. I mean, I suppose the examples would be that I had no no income. I was on benefits. And I've really found that very difficult to begin with to accept. I'd always been sort of fiercely independent. And, you know, I will. I don't you know, I'm fine. But all of a sudden you're completely reliant on a system. Um, on lots of systems, actually, but the mental health system, I'm reliant on the benefit system, I'm reliant on my parents. And and I remember thinking, I want to try and earn some of my own money just for me. And so I made cards and <laughs> probably took it a little bit too far in that I became quite obsessed by it. But I remember before Christmas, I made 177 cards, right? And I remember thinking to myself, I've bought myself in for a craft fair. I'm going to sell all these cards. It'll be amazing. Well, I sold two cards. And I could have taken it as a real knockback, Mm. but I was so excited Mm. that I had sold two because it meant that two people found worth in the cards that I'd made. Um, And that just reading back on that and being like, do you know what, Emma, like that was kind of really key for you. And, And actually what that means is it was to do with worth and it was to do with purpose. The more I started reading back on my journal, I started noticing these sort of themes, but actually kind of the common thread through all of it was finding hope again. We all don't, we have experiences, I think, and if we speak to people sort of from the wider community, we'll 
we sort of get inundated by people's negative experiences of mental health services. And I mean, I'm not here to to slate or bash anybody because actually, I mean, I was part of the early intervention service. They they sort of picked me up quite quickly and they, again, saved my life. Like the, the treatment and the care that I had from them was phenomenal. But then later on in my journey, I would meet professionals who would say things to me like, you know, your life expectancy is going to be shortened by 15 years because of your illness. And that's because my diagnosis by then had changed to schizoaffective disorder. Yeah. And sort of because of that element of schizophrenia and the psychosis side, you know, well, that's what the research says. But it's things like that that you just think, well, why, why are you telling me this? Like, how can that possibly help somebody? Mm. And so... I suppose sort of the the stubborn side of me and the side of me that's a bit like if I don't think it's being done very well and I think I can see a solution, I'll try and find a way. Started to think, hang on a minute, surely the people who are going through it are the people who understand it the best. And what is out there that teaches people that you can find hope? So I started researching. I looked, I did a lot of research around hope and I learned some amazing stuff. For me, to begin with, hope was something that was like a light switch. You'd either got it or you hadn't. It was on or off. But I learned that that's not true about hope. Hope's on a continuum and you can move up and down that continuum throughout the day. So you can start with great hope and then something terrible can happen and your hope levels go right back down again and you can feel quite hopeless. But then you can something else can happen and you can pick up again. And I learned to see it in a different way. And then I started to think, but surely then we can teach people how to find hope like that must be possible. And so using my journals, I started to look at the themes that were there and how did I find hope? What was it that helped me to find hope? Things like making something and selling it, but the concept behind that of doing something creative and finding your pur- finding a purpose. Things like routine, things like acceptance, the idea that, you know, I, I can't change what's happened. I can't, I can never go back. I can only ever go forwards and maybe stand still for a little bit of time. And that's okay too. So all of those themes and then slowly, slowly, this kind of the idea of this hope in recovery group and um, sort of came into being. And I suppose from there, things just sort of snowboard really because I realised that this had potential but I wasn't quite sure what to do with it and so showed it to a few people that I trusted and they gave me some very very honest feedback which is the best kind of feedback obviously some of it I was like huh I don't know whether I agree with you Um, but actually it was all good feedback because it made me kind of reconsider and kind of really hone in on what is it that I'm trying to do here and find almost like the niche in the market um really so so what is it that's not being done and how can we fill that space and so yeah I think for me on the back of Gary's question and 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 actually perhaps you've answered it really beautifully thank you for that um is what skills did you think you developed along the way along the journey I mean for me what stood out is determination and grit you held on to something and uh, and I know obviously from your your teaching background there was a name isn't there or a goal or a, a, at least the idea is that you could share this and um, mm. and and teach people so I, I guess as I'm talking another question is coming up about the difficulty if you did have in in sharing your story quite often was that a challenge challenge for you did that prove difficult yeah absolutely I think initially I overshared and I learned really quickly that you have to keep things certain things you've got to hold back because 
our stories are precious and we're precious. And if you give it away, you can never take it back again. And so it was quite a steep learning curve very, very, very quickly in that I would just almost like word vomit, just like it would just come out. And then I'd be like, oh, oh, oh dear. Uh, okay, right. I probably shouldn't have said that, but it was too late. So I think sort of that was one of the things that I learned really quickly. And the other thing was how exhausting it is. Mm. Like you're essentially sharing kind of the, I wouldn't say the darkest moment, they, they kind of are the darkest moments but then at the same time they're the moments that have kind of made you in a sense that's how I see it but yeah it's 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 quite it's almost like a physical process as well like like I know so for example I love sharing my story I love being able to kind of talk because I think that the only way the only way that we can kind of give hope to people who don't have any is to share hope and one of the best ways that we can do that is to share our story actually Um, because then people can see that well there is light at the end of the tunnel and it is possible but I also know that for example at the end of this podcast I am doing nothing this afternoon because I need time to decompress Mm -hmm. and I need time to kind of process through am I happy with what I shared like how do I still feel about that all of that kind of stuff it's interesting because my story will change depending on who I'm telling it to as well so yeah it's, it's one of those things isn't it I think it's it's still like a massive learning curve I don't think I'll ever get it 100 yeah. percent it's just it's, it's a process I guess I think that's really important what you're saying as well about your reflective processing as well in terms of some of the things that you've shared and like you say I've had experiences where I feel like I've shared something and actually I've, I've overexposed myself sometimes and I think actually what can I do next time what what would I do and and, and is that process sometimes I think well oh, shut up or I won't say anything at all and then you think oh so it, it's hard to strike that balance isn't it and like you say mm-hmm. I suppose that all of our kind of recovery experiences are ongoing aren't they and like you say this has kind of brought you to this point today but at the same time you're you know you've built a charity and we'll come to that in a moment about on your based on your experiences but to help other people and I think that's really really valuable about how you how you've been able to do that and sort of what's like Jennifer said about what skills that you've kind of developed because some of these things you would have already had haven't you but when you spoke earlier about the kind of you lost yourself you know you you probably lost kind of insight into what what you are able to do and actually focusing your energies in this particular way has helped you rediscover Emma, just thinking and reflecting on what you were saying and you know this Hope Foundation uh, I've been given the opportunity to sort of co-facilitate the the work that you've done in partnership with uh, Recovery College but I'm just thinking you know when we talk about recovery focused or practice approach we talk about sort of hope control opportunity and I was just thinking at how much that by setting this hope foundation you've created quite a lot of opportunity for other people to get on board in so many different ways haven't you you've diversified into art as well haven't you yeah and stuff like that and on reflection just you know about the opportunities that the people have had because I'm sure there's a lot of people benefited from not only attending uh, the, the the seven week course but also sort of being able to co-facilitate it perhaps and, and go on to do other things. Yeah absolutely I think when you talk about hope control opportunity that's that's absolutely what our charity is about. It was never about me it's about the collective we if you see what I mean in that you know we're stronger together actually and I think when when we initially set it up very much sort of like one of our core sort of values and aims is that we will 
for example, our trustee board, everybody on our trustee board is an expert by experience. We won't employ somebody unless they've got lived experience. And it's about holding on to those things, isn't it? And then providing opportunity where there maybe historically hasn't been one. And I think we're certainly in such a better place now in terms of peer support work, in terms of um, valuing lived experience than we ever have been. But I still think that there's, there's a long way for sort of the wider um, sort of networks to go. Absolutely, there is. And I think if we can be a small part of that, then that makes me happy. I think it's about giving people a voice. If somebody, I mean, we've had people who have come through our programme, come out the other side and then said to us, we'd like to write this. You haven't got anything for crisis. Can we write you a crisis programme? Yes, you can. Happy days. Let's do that. <laughs> like, it's, don't ever, if we ever get to a stage where as an organisation, we become precious about our organisation, that's when it's all going to start to go wrong. Oh. It's got to always be about inclusivity and listening to people because, you know, we've got to have our finger on the pulse. And if we're not listening to people, then we're just we're just going to be kind of going our own way, doing whatever we want to do. And actually, you know, the, the Hope Group is a is a part of it. But these other offshoots have come about because because people have come to us and said there's a need here. And those people have said, and I think I could do something to help. It's so inspiring other people to kind of look in themselves about what can I offer as well? I think that's the opportunity thing that you were saying Gary isn't it could I just take you back to kind of like when you said that you shared kind of the plans or the kind of group and reflections and things with other people and you they were giving you feedback how did that then grow into the idea of developing the charity was that the next logical step or was there a bit in between or I think to be completely honest at that stage and I had like quite a massive panic um because, <laughs> because I realized that there was something there was something there and there was something of value and it could make a difference but what on earth how like what how what like what <laughs> do you even do like yeah so I think I've realized that in order to be able to enable people to access it we needed some form of organization and and then sort of there started the ridiculousness of deciding whether we were going to be a charity whether we were going to be a, um, a CIC what that was going to look like and then sort of oh to say it was a learning curve would be an understatement a cic is a community interest company so i knew it couldn't be a business because mm-hmm. it was never about making profit it was about helping people and so i started to i suppose look into the different structures of not-for-profit organizations of which there are way more than i ever knew about <laughs> um and then very quickly realized that I can't, I can't, there's no way Emma can do this on her own. Uh-huh. Um, and I am so out of my debt. And imposter syndrome is something that I live with on a daily basis, as do a lot of us. So, yeah, very quickly established a, a, a sort of almost like a, a mini trustee board in a sense. And then did what I did find hard. Uh, I'm getting better at it, but I delegated. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we, we sort of, as, as a group of people, decided that actually the way forwards for us is to register as a charity. Uh, and then we looked into the because there's also different types of charity. So what type of charity do we need to be? Wow. Um, and then sort of started to put together all the kind of necessary processes and paperwork, which I can't pretend wasn't a nightmare because it was. But we did it. We got through it. And we finally sent our application off um, in 2019. And we heard back from the Charities Commission in February 2020 to say that we'd been granted charitable status. And we were all set up and ready to go. And then we had the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) 
perfect timing (laughs) yeah yeah but actually do you know what Annie it it kind of really was and we look back on it now and we're like do you know what silver linings all the way because for us we only ever ran one session of one group face to face Mm -hmm. and then we were kind of all of us weren't we thrown into this like ah what are we going to do and so we really quickly adapted the one thing that we got to an online course and so whereas I suppose other organizations were having to adapt everything because they were already established they'd already got loads going on in a sense I'm not going to say it was easier well it probably was actually we'd we'd got this one thing that we could offer and we just focused on let's just make it the best thing that we can do online and uh, yeah it's kind of snowballed from there really I feel like at this moment I should well I'd like to kind of just shout out to the team that I've got around me because it's very much not a me and and I think because sometimes I'm I'm kind of a bit of the face of this I guess um not that it's a position that I particularly relish but the wider team um so there's Jay um Jacinta who is sort of the other half of TRF, basically. She's phenomenal. She's an absolute powerhouse. We rely so much on one another. And then there's sort of the wider team. So we've got sort of our creative arts director. Uh, that's Angie. She's, again, sort of, she she did our very first hope group and came through that. And as a result of that now, she oversees our entire creative arts programme. And we just, we're, you know, we're so blessed. There's so many wonderful people that are involved. And I feel like now I've started naming names. I've shot myself in the foot because it's <laughs> I didn't say my name. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we've we've got this wonderful team and we've got a great board of trustees. And the, the beauty about it, I think, is that we all get it because we've all lived it. Um, yeah. We've all got different experiences, but actually that just brings wider depth and breadth to the pot. And so, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, it's very exciting. Just on that, I heard on another podcast a really brilliant quote: "In sharing comes power." Ooh, and I, I just, love that. I know, and I just it, it gave me the tingles because I thought actually that is so spot on in so many ways. Mm. Not just mm. like you say, everybody's bringing their lived experience to that, and so mm. therefore you're growing, aren't you? And that's mm-hmm. power there. And then in the courses, in the sessions, everybody again coming together, sharing, and even mm. if it's just a sentence, a snippet of something, the mm. inspiration just from sharing can be lifted for someone, and there's power in that, isn't there? That's amazing. Mm. Yeah. Oh, really Perhaps I should that. reference where I heard it. Maybe that's the correct thing to do. It was on another podcast, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's such a cool thing to say. It is. Yeah. I think as well, when you said about your your organisational values as a charity, a lot of them align with, obviously, you're very recovery focused in, in everything yeah. you do. And a lot of them really align with what we're trying to do within our recovery work within the trust and things. Um, and obviously that, it feels like when we first met Emma, I think we probably did meet about three years ago, didn't we? When you initially came yeah. to kind of just have a chat with us about what you were doing and things like that. And, and it naturally felt like we align quite mm. nicely, don't we, in terms of that. And so that has led on to us kind of working, as Gary said at the beginning, in, in sort of partnership and we've you your charity you in the charity have given us opportunities for our experts by experience to one you know have access to the course through recovery college but also to potentially do the training as well to become the facilitators and I think that's a wonderful thing that we've been able to to do together isn't it really so I just want to say thank you to to you and the charity in that sense because it does feel like our kind of tagline I guess is about learning together makes us stronger and I think there is definitely something around and Gary you you kind of always remind me of this about it's about being 
being included, isn't it? And having that yeah, there was be... a quote from Benjamin Franklin that was 1700 and something, I can't remember, but he was well ahead of his time. And he said something like, tell me and I, might for- I may forget, teach me and I might remember, include me and I'll learn. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and it stayed with me. It stayed with me uh, when I, you know, sort of saw that quote. It stayed with me through my peer training and some dark times as well. I just thought that is amazing. And it sums up my the way I learn. You know, uh, I mean, we've all got different um, styles of learning, but that inclusive thing is so important, isn't it? And he recognised that like over two hundred and something years ago or whatever. So that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, just I think just to kind of pick up on what you've said as well like it is absolutely a mutual feeling like we feel so incredibly honored to be part of what you guys are doing just because you know in a world where there's a lot of talk about including people with lived experience it's great to meet a team of people who are doing it on the ground and who are not just talking the talk but walking the walk and I think that's it's just so amazing and um you know we we, it feels like a real privilege and an honor for us to be to be working with you guys so yeah it's very much a mutual thing (laughs) yeah now we've all got smug face (laughs) yeah we can all smug now (laughs) Um, like you say I think I think it's that collaborative nature isn't it and kind of and I think how you sort of saying um that the charities developed and the strands that have come out of that it's that organic process isn't it and I think that that's the way that recovery is isn't it for each person it's so individual that we don't fit into boxes easily we've got different interests we've got different skills there's you know there's different opportunities there and how we can develop then actually having a responsive kind of thing not rather than going this is what you need to be and they can this is what we've got on offer sort of thing so I I really like that approach about being flexible and organic and and you know using people's skills and experiences around you rather than thinking like you said earlier it's not just me it's not just on my thing there's there's other people around and I think again that's that strong that strength isn't it strength in numbers and things yeah Definitely. You know, the minute we start becoming prescriptive, we've got a problem. Like as a mental health service user myself, like a lot of a lot of what you get told is prescriptive. You need to take this. You need to do this. You should be doing blah, 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 blah. And actually, in order to to bring about change, one of the simplest ways is to flip that on its head and put the control back in the hands of the person who's living what they're living. It's it's so important, isn't it, I think? Yeah, try and keep it a bit loose. When you try and fit people and and services into tick boxes too much, you narrow it down, don't you? It becomes so tight that it's hard to actually be flexible. And I think I've learned from a few people involved in charities and one business now that are actually going over to become a charity they're doing it purely because they've probably got more freedom you know more autonomy as a charity rather than a plc or a cic or whatever you know and uh it's interesting to see see those guys doing that as well can we talk a little bit more about when you said about hope and how you learn that there's not just black and white of you have it or you don't have it sort of thing um, and if we could talk a little bit more about the course structure of the hope and recovery course because I think that ex- that kind of goes into a bit more detail doesn't it about how hope evolves yeah absolutely well I mean it's my favorite subject hope so yes <laughs> absolutely uh how long have you got so the sort of the more okay, I guess the more research I did one of the kind of key findings was and I won't be able to reference it properly but perhaps I'll give you the reference there was kind of loads of stuff written in sort of academia about it but basically the crux of it is recovery without hope is impossible and I think we we would all 
acknowledge that, wouldn't we? And, and sort of agree with that. And so the more I looked into it and what is hope and how do we get hope? Where do we find hope? The more I started to sort of look at people who'd studied hope and sort of what were they saying? And I found this amazing person called C.R. Snyder. And he developed what's called the, well, he's developed lots of different ones, but he did loads of research around hope. Hope was never really researched until sort of the 50s when people started looking at things like positive psychology started to sort of in its very, very sort of infancy. And people started to sort of have a little think around, well, what is hope and, and that kind of thing. And then it wasn't until the 90s that Snyder discovered that he was going to do, well, just decided he was going to research it and he was going to, that was going to be his thing. And he's made like international waves in, in sort of the research of hope. But one of the sort of the, the key concepts of his and, and that sort of we as a recovery foundation really, really love is that he says that to in order to have hope, you need to have, oh no, hang on, I'm going to get this wrong. <laughs> I'm not going to use his words, otherwise I'm going to mess it up. But you've got to have a goal. So there's got to be something you want to achieve and you've got to have the motivation to get yourself there. I think he calls it agency and pathways. But the idea is that hope is, he talks about hope in terms of looking forward to something. So wanting to perhaps achieve something. And again, you know, sort of at a later date, you know, we've sort of come to realise actually there's something called historic hope you can have historical hope you can there's all, all kinds of different false hope which is probably the worst kind of hope but looking at hope in terms of what do I want to achieve what what am I hopeful for and it might not be an achievement in terms of this job or it might be an achievement I mean for me it was I want to get out of bed today or it was I'm going to try and sell my cards or it might have been I'm going to take my medication on time or the bigger things like one day I'm going to be able to look at reducing my medication or whatever it might have been but we have to have that thing in the future that we're kind of wanting to achieve so that's the first thing and then the other thing is we all know in life don't we we need a pathway to get there we need a way to achieve that and um his research shows that people who only have one route to that might struggle slightly more than people who can come up with lots of different routes so that if if I come across a barrier on my way to getting to where I want to. So say, for example, I wanted to just I'll use, an, use the example of making cards. I want to make some cards. I want to sell them. Um, so that's my goal. The way to get it to get there is to make them, to sign up to a craft fair and to sell them at the craft fair. But say there was a barrier in the way in that I couldn't afford the craft fair fee or I was ill on the day of the craft fair and I couldn't get there. Does that then completely negate all of that? Yeah, yeah. Or do I have to come up with another route to get there? Do I have to think, well, actually, this is still what I want to achieve. I've just got to find a different way to do it. Mm. And what his research basically showed, I'm probably, I feel like I'm doing him a massive disservice. But anyway, <laughs> what his research, some of his research showed was that people who have multiple routes to achieve a goal have higher hope. Yeah. And hope breeds hope. So yeah. and this is where historical hope comes in. And this is part of what we teach people on the Hope in Recovery course. It's looking at what have I done in the past? And if I could do it, then I can do it again. So for me, it was, you know, I was an impatient. I started to get well again, but get well, loose terms. And I applied for a job, got a job did that for three months, had another massive relapse, ended up in hospital for an even longer time. Now, at the time, that was devastating because I was like, well, that's it then. Forget it. I can't do it. What's the point? And all this kind of stuff. But actually, looking back on it, when you've got enough space between that um, circumstance and you look back on it, you can think, well, actually, no, because I learned stuff 
mm. within that time and learning stuff can only ever be a good thing mm. and and I've, I actually like I came through it and I probably recovered quicker from my second relapse than I did from my first because I knew what I needed to do I'd got some stuff in place we try and teach people in sort of the hope group that the importance of purpose but mm. a purpose for that person it's got to be personal purpose it's no use me saying oh you know you, this should be your purpose. Well, well, what use is that? You're not me. Like, you're not living <laughs> my life. It's about helping people to identify where they find hope, what hope is to them, and what they want to achieve moving forward, and supporting people within that. Because so much of kind of what we can be fed is, well, you've got a mental illness. That's the full stop now. That's like, you, you know, life ends here. You're fundamentally now just going to be on hold or on pause. And that's so not true. Yeah. Um, it's really damaging. Yeah, as well, to have that kind of so like restrictions on, like, you know, all the best you can hope to achieve is this. And actually, oh. it's nothing, you know, um, it's really restrictive, isn't it? And I just find it really fascinating. Thank you for sharing about the research and things. I hadn't looked into it in that sort of detail and understanding it in that way. But also the fact that it wasn't even researched until 1990. Oh, no, and so when you think about recovery and like you say it's a fundamental part of personal recovery is to have hope and that was like what I always forget what decade we're in now <laughs> 20 30 years ago do you know what I mean? before that was even researched about the importance of hope what about all the do you know what I mean and it just makes me really sad that that you know glad that it's happened because now we understand it more and like you say you kind of use those references and that research to help build up the program that you offer also it just makes me sort of think about we were neglecting you know mental health services society was neglecting such a massive part of what's important to people and like you said that personal element of personal recovery and hope so yeah thank you for that i think in terms of the hope in recovery group because i probably didn't answer that because i got on a <laughs> on a research tangent the group basically can covers seven themes and we use the analogy of an acorn growing into a mighty oak tree the reason well the reason that we chose that was basically because i think sometimes it's easier to think of your mental health journey in terms of a story almost mm. and so we could relate the story of an acorn and its different sort of stages of life to our mental health journey and it kind of linked really nicely so for example um, the first theme is called crisis and we start with the acorn being buried underground because actually when you're in crisis it can feel like you're isolated you're surrounded in darkness you can't see your way out but then relating that to the acorn well actually the acorn's got everything inside it that it needs to start the whole of the rest of its life and so do we like even in our darkest moments inside of us we've got those reserves that like that reserve tank that we can draw on to get us through mm. and so we follow this sort of this acorn basically on uh, on its journey so we look at crisis we look at question so that's to do with labels the labels that people put on us some of them we might welcome others we might be like no thank you very much and we look at the labels that we would like to have rather than ones that have just been attached to us or pushed on us what would we choose for ourselves we look at breakthrough that's the next theme the idea again with the story of the acorn that you know it's it's formed its taproot but actually now it's starting to break through the soil surface 
surface and start its journey above the soil. But we look at in terms of sort of for us, what does that look like? You know, and and as we start to understand a little bit more, maybe about maybe you might have had a diagnosis, you might not have, but you might be starting to understand a bit more about how your own mental health impacts on, on your life. What does that look like? We then move to responsibility, which absolutely categorically isn't about us saying that you're responsible for the fact that you have got a mental illness because no but it is about the fact that we're responsible for our recovery and our our recovery journey and so what does that look like what are the things that we need to do and we need to put in place in order to help us journey that journey using a lot of journeys so that's that stage then we look at acceptance that's the fifth theme and we usually give a bit longer for this theme because it's a tough theme and that is about mm-hmm. the fact that we might have a relapse or we might suffer a bereavement or we might suffer an injustice or whatever life throws at us because life is life and we are we're never going to get through it smoothly that's just not how it is is it an acceptance take it doesn't happen over time. i mean when you were sharing it earlier as we were talking about your experiences mm-hmm. it is clear that about how your acceptance grew about coming to terms with it wasn't just something you were up one day and we're like oh I've accepted everything that's happened and, thinking, and it's probably still now where you, there's yeah. certain like mm-hmm. you say around you know you don't you wouldn't kind of wish it hadn't happened and things but it's it's just sort of it's complex isn't it I think acceptance and I think it's really really good that you've got that space in the course to be able to explore what that means as an individual because I think sometimes just hearing that word you can just think it's a pressure on you as an individual to go well like, if I just accepted it I'd be able to move on and actually that's not not what you're saying is it in terms of the course and things it's that process yeah absolutely and that it's like you were saying it's a process that you will revisit multiple times probably a week because whilst at the moment I am well in terms of I've not been I've not had a psychotic episode since 2012 and that's great but it doesn't mean that the rest of my mental health issues are great and yeah it's it's about finding that balance I think and sort of thinking well I can control what I can control and that's fine but actually there's there's much more that I can't and that I'll never be able to control and it's about for me personally it's, it's been a real journey in sort of thinking well so my men- so my mental health has an impact on my physical health and I can have like um, functional weakness and things like that where I have no control over um, my limbs and I can sort of lose all feeling and sensation in my leg, uh, my left leg, um, if particularly if I'm stressed. But it's thinking, well, and uh, well, as I'm saying this, I'm like, you hypocrite, Emma, because actually you're not putting in place what you're about to say. <laughs> but I know, I know that I need to be really careful with my stress levels. Yeah. Um, but then I also know that my character is that you just keep on pushing. And so it's kind of like this massive, like, it's almost like there's a version of me on this shoulder and there's a version mm-hmm. of me on this shoulder. And this one's going just for goodness sake Emma just take some time out you're going to have an episode like just calm yourself down and then on this shoulder there's another no get it done if you don't (laughs) and then my body will just go no and it literally just shuts down and it's accepting that I'm not in control of that like I can't get sensation back in my leg by physically wishing it was there if you see what I mean like I'm not in control of that and it's those kind of things isn't it like I'm not in control of the mood I'm going to wake up in I can do things to help myself and my husband particularly but I'm I'm not yeah it's it's a, it's a tricky one isn't it but it's handling it very carefully yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So that's the fifth theme before I just start going off again. The sixth theme is about growth and it's about looking at our lives in terms of seasons and that actually the great thing about the seasons is you never stay in the same season and you might feel like you've wintered for years and maybe some people do winter for years but actually the spring always follows it and it's trying to kind of almost reflect and look back on those different seasons and think well when when were those seasons in my life when was when was the autumn when was my time of celebrating all the harvest and all the things that I'd achieved when did that happen when is the summer when am I just kind of really happy and feeling at my best does that last a long time like I feel like my summers are two days long and then that's it sometimes and then oh no look again I'm back in winter but it will it's a cycle it will always you'll always come through it into a different season and then the, the final thing is about giving because actually hope is the only thing that through giving away you get more of and so we talk about how to give hope to other people even if you feel like you have nothing to offer you do and the biggest thing you can offer is your story and your lived experience and so we talk about how to share what to share and what would that look like for somebody it might be a smile it might just be smiling at somebody it might be I don't don't know it's different for everybody isn't it but we kind of explore that a little bit more so that's kind of the seven different sort of themes that we look at over the course of the weeks it never ceases to amaze me Emma when 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 meeting people and it 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 seems to be a theme all the time it's so humbling and, and inspirational that you see people that you think or they think that not in a very good place in a level of distress and then you know not functioning as well as they'd like but what comes out of most people's mouths at that time is how can I help what what can I give back and it's so humbling isn't it to want for them to want to share you know if people want to share and give others hope even when they're not in a great place themselves you know sometimes it's so humbling isn't it mm, it's incredible mm. and so powerful because actually through the act of them doing that it will help them anyway because even if they're not aware of it it will raise their hope it's that connectivity isn't it all of us need to feel connected yeah, yeah. and yeah it, it is it's amazing yeah yeah and I really, thank you for explaining about the different um elements of the course and i think a lot of it is kind of helping an individual develop their own insight and everyone's got a lot of insight into their own experience but I think being able to kind of frame it around the kind of the acorn and, and the growth and and acceptance and things I think that's really a good way it's a, that reflection again isn't it on on my own experiences and like you said how can then I channel these to be able to kind of share with other people mm-hmm. in a safe way for myself yeah. and I think I think that's really really yeah. positive that we've got yeah. we've got this as a resource that you've developed with the charity obviously yours experiences but with the charity that also we can also offer opportunities as well for people to to think about personal recovery in that way yeah it, it is really exciting I think sort of one of the key things for us is that it's it's there's no them and us it's the facilitators yeah. aren't they're not in it to kind of lecture and tell you this is how it should be they're in it to talk about well this was my lived experience what was yours and actually mm. as facilitators and I mean you guys will know now having sort of come through it and been delivering it stuff oh my goodness I come away so challenged sometimes like we we finished a course a couple of weeks back and one of the guys on that course stopped me in my tracks and said, I need to, I need to challenge you on something. And, you know, when you're like, oh, no, I know what was like. And I knew what was coming <laughs> and I knew I wasn't going to like hearing it. And that it meant fundamentally for me that I needed to sort something out in my own life. Mm. But how wonderful is that? 
Yeah. Like we're all in it together, aren't we? And if it's about drawing alongside people and being in a, it's such a privileged place to be that we've all got something that we can pass on to somebody. Yeah. What I find really rewarding from, from this approach and what we're talking about, sort of, you know, sort of being inclusive and, and recovery focused is that when a lot of us are unwell, become unwell, we lose the, the ability to problem solve. And I think by sharing and being included in, in these ways, we start to get that that skill back mm. about problem solving and then you know sort of looking forward rather than looking back so it came up in some therapy that I was doing that sometimes I lose that that ability to problem solve and that's when I become quite distressed yeah and I think what we're talking about today is with sharing and, and creating opportunities for people to be able to engage in that and, and actually problem solve together yeah. to share those problems and this is what worked for me I'm not sure if it, it might not work for you but this and you find somewhere in between where you go oh that's just answered a few mm-hmm. questions that I was trying to sort of get through yeah absolutely yeah absolutely so it's been so lovely to to chat this I think we could carry on couldn't we (laughs) yeah but I'm aware that you've got other things that you need to be doing and so I just wanted to ask anything that you'd like it to leave us with a message for the listeners or anything that you'd want to share I suppose it would be that wherever you are and wherever you find yourself today that there is hope even if at this particular moment in time to you there is none there is and there are people out there who will hold hope for you until you're ready to take it for yourself and I suppose it would be to just just hang in there and just keep going and it is possible to live well in recovery absolutely that would be the final thing that I wanted to say living living a good life and a life that's fulfilling is absolutely possible with a diagnosis that's a lovely note for us to end on thank you thank you again Emma and thank you for sharing